Welcome to The Cap, where we are here to speak with college reps and other professionals in the field of college admissions to help answer all your questions and guide you through every step of the process. So if you're serious about college admissions, you've come to the right place. Are you ready? Let's talk about it. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Durante. Welcome to The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and I am here to introduce you to college admissions representatives and other professionals in the field of college admissions. Our purpose is to serve you, the students and parents, so that you may gain insight straight from the people who ultimately make the decisions. Regardless of whether you will apply to a particular school being highlighted, you should listen to all of the episodes as each guest will give you tremendous insight and advice on every aspect of the college admissions process, prompting you to come up with your own follow-up questions for when you visit campus or meet with a college admissions representative yourself. Lastly, if you have any questions you'd like me to cover on future episodes or any comments you'd like to share, please email me at collegeadmissionstalk at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.collegeadmissionstalk.com. So are you ready? Let's talk about it. Welcome to The Cap, everyone, the College Admissions Process Podcast. I am your host, John Durante, and it gives me great pleasure today to introduce everyone to episode 50 of the College Admissions Process Podcast. Being that it's episode 50, I thought it would be nice to have a panel of representatives answering questions that I've received from students and their parents. So today, we are fortunate to have Jade Ian Heller from Adelphi University, who also did episode one with us. We have Asma Malik from Syracuse University, who did episodes four and five. We have Lori Wax from Penn State University, who did episode nine. We have Larry Altman from Michigan State that did episode seven. We have Brianna Grimes from Vanderbilt University who did episode 26. And we also have Ariana Yaritu from NYU that did episode 28. So the format for today will be that I will read a question and for each of the questions, I will call on two representatives to answer. So if we're ready, here we go. Question number one. During each of your episodes, you spoke about the amazing opportunities that your schools offer both inside and outside of the classrooms, on campus, and of course, beyond. When searching for the right college, what should a student be looking for to ensure that they are finding the right fit for themselves and that they are, in fact, the right fit for the schools that they are applying to? Let's start with Asma. Sure. Thank you, John. Um, so there's absolutely a number of factors that you should be looking into, but um, I'm going to start off with two and then I'll let my colleague Jade uh, maybe add on. So when looking at a college, I think the biggest thing is you need to figure out what type of academic environment you want to be in. You know, are you an individual that learns better in small group settings um, that's more discussion based or are you the type of person who can benefit from uh, large lectures uh, where the professor is just feeding you information and then you process it on your own and you go back to your notes and um, you know that's how you absorb material so the academic environment is really important um, you know thinking about what type of learner you are and then finding um, a college that can, can that can suit you. Um, the other thing you can also be looking at, you know, is, is key is location because there are thousands of amazing schools out there, but um, you know it's a big factor in terms of travel. You know, maybe you want to be close to family. You don't really want to go out of state. You'll have plenty of options. Um, but you need to have a conversation with your family in terms of how comfortable they are with you going away. Um, maybe it's a five hour radius. Maybe it's okay to go from East Coast to West Coast. Um, and that will really help narrow down your list. And then um, lastly, I would say is academics. Um, you know, you don't have to have your life figured out at 17, 18 years old. You don't have to have a major 
at that point. But if you have certain passions, certain subjects that do excite you and you potentially want to explore, you have to make sure that they can support you at that college with those passions. Um, Coming in undecided is great. Um, Just make sure that you find a college that can support you in navigating the different classes and graduation requirements and then ultimately helping you declare that major. You know, if you have interest in engineering, but you're not ready to commit yourself to engineering, you're looking at a school that doesn't even have an engineering program, ultimately, it's not probably the right fit. So, um, you know, looking at the academic offerings and what type of support you might be getting from academic advisors um, or faculty members in that journey would be very helpful. Thank you so much, Asma. And now, Jay, same question for you. Perfect. And I would definitely echo what Asma said, um, making sure that the school has the different majors that you're looking for, especially if you're coming in undecided. Um, maybe make sure that school has, you know, two or three of the majors that you were deciding between so that if maybe you take a few classes in the first subject and it doesn't work out um, or it really doesn't spark your interest, you still can just change your major rather than having to totally upheave and change schools. Um, the other thing that I always stress with students is you really have to be honest with yourself. Um, not only so much with like the academic piece in learning styles, as Asma talked about, but if you do need a more personalized approach or more support systems, um, you need to make sure that the schools that you are applying to and ultimately decide to go to have those support systems in place. So if um, you know you have a learning disability and maybe you need extra testing time or you know extra help with note taking and things like that, you want to make sure that the school you're going to offers those things. There is no um, shame involved in saying that you need a little extra help. You just don't want to set yourself up for failure. So you want to make sure that all of those support systems are in place. Um, And then the other thing is to really start a good relationship with the schools you are interested in to make sure that you are the right academic fit for them as well. Um, It's important to be honest with yourself. If maybe it took a little bit of extra time to get your footing in high school, um, maybe your grades aren't exactly where you want them to be. Maybe if you aren't the perfect academic fit for your dream school as a first year student, maybe you could consider being a transfer student to that school or um, finding another school that would be the best academic fit for you as well as financial fit for you. Um, Being realistic with those options are going to get you in a good place so that you feel totally confident about the schools you're applying to and the schools that ultimately you are accepted to. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Jade and Ozma. And my next question is, students usually spend at least four years in college. So visiting campus before committing to a school is so important for the students to get a feeling for the campus and of course the surrounding area. Taking tours and spending time on campus are things that can easily be replicated online. So when a student comes to campus, What are the areas that they should visit and what are some questions they should be asking to help them determine if the school is in fact the right fit for them? I'm going to ask Larry to answer this question first. Larry? Well, great. Thank you so much, John. So this is, first of all, a really exciting process. And so students, I hope you're excited about this. And when you're visiting a campus, this could be the place you're spending the next four years. So what I encourage you to do is to plan your visit. What do I mean by that? First of all, again, I would make sure that you schedule a campus tour. We offer a lot of tours. Some of them will fill up. So be proactive and plan that out. Understand what is the time of the presentation and the tour. What is the full window of time that will take? And then I would think about, all right, what is it you're really interested in? For example, if you're interested in business or in engineering, maybe you can reach out to that College of Business or College of Engineering. Maybe they have a program the same day, or maybe there's somebody you can meet with. But I would encourage you to do this two or even better, four weeks in advance because programs will fill up, schedules will fill up. The more in advance, the more choices you will have. Also, I always suggest to students and families, if you can, eat in a dining hall on a college campus. This is a real student activity. There will actually be potentially other real students there, current students. Talk to them. Ask them questions. 
see how you're greeted. How you're greeted is going to give you an idea of what your comfort level is at that school. Walk around the town. Maybe even reach out to the admissions office. Ask for a list of some of the coffee shops. Go and sit. Spend time. Just immerse yourself in the environment. And you're going to feel one of two things. You're going to feel fit. You're going to feel a great comfort. Or you're not. Either one is a great thing because either one is progress on your list. And in terms of questions, you have to think about what you're interested in. This is a very personal process. What is important to you? And I would ask those same questions at every school and be sure you make careful notes because you're not going to remember everything. But if you make notes, then when you look at those later and you're comparing them to the other schools, it's going to literally bring you back to that moment in time when you made those notes. So John, I hope that helps our students and families as I know the summer is a very busy time for visits and I encourage students and families to get out there. Well, it certainly does help, Larry. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Lori, we're going to turn to you. Same question. Thank you. Okay, so Larry made some excellent points. Um, I would say that it is so key to visit campus because many students will think that they really want a big school or they'll think they want to be in a city or they'll think they want to be in the middle of you know, a rural, rural area. And until you really get there, it's hard to get that sense. You can definitely uh, get a, a tour, a virtual tour, but until you're physically there, it's hard to really know. And I've definitely seen students that thought they went, wanted a really small school, visited a really small campus and found that it wasn't the right fit. And the same for students that thought they wanted a really big school and then decided that's not really the right fit for them. So it is really key to get a sense of your environment by actually being there. But more important than that, and Larry did talk about this, you want to get a sense of if you feel like you fit with your classmates, if this is a, an environment that you're comfortable in, and just getting on campus and seeing students and talking to them, asking you know where they're from, asking what they're studying, asking if they you know what they do on the weekends or what they do for fun. I mean, those are all important things to that you might not get a sense of if you're doing things virtually. Um, you can usually virtually get information sessions about specific academic colleges. Uh, you can get more information about specific academic colleges within a university once you're on campus and you can actually go into buildings. And definitely, if you have the opportunity, if there is a specific major you're interested in, uh, to reach out in advance and, and make an appointment so you're not just going on a tour and an information session, but maybe you're also going into the communications building or the business school or the science building. So um, take advantage of being there and being able to possibly meet uh, you know, one-on-one -on -one with somebody who's in the area that you're interested in. Uh, but I think, you know, mostly really to get a sense of the other students on campus, uh, you can ask questions about how are resources really easily accessible, things that it, it's kind of hard to gauge just from going on the website. Uh, there's, you know, nothing like an in-person visit to really give you a sense of whether or not this is someplace you can call home for the next four years. Well, we really appreciate that advice, both Lori and Larry. Thank you so much. My next question is going to be for Brianna and Ariana, which is, with the increase in schools going test optional and the ease in which to apply to multiple schools, of course, thanks to the Common App and the Coalition App, schools are receiving far more applications than ever before. As admissions professionals, how do you determine the number of applicants to accept, waitlist, and even deny when you receive far more applications from deserving candidates than seats that are actually available in your institutions? Let's start with Brianna. Thank you, John. Um, it's a great question. And the short answer is it is not an easy task at all. Um, at Vanderbilt, we um, at least have a baseline because we are always going to have our first year class remain around 1,600 students. This is so all of those 1,600 students can be um, take advantage of our first year commons experience. And so we never want to over admit so that students don't get to have that first year experience because it's really important. 
at Vanderbilt. Um, and then otherwise, it really does depend on the context. It does depend on how many students apply, what schools they're applying to. In terms of the wait list, we never want to wait list more students than are necessary because some of these students will have applied in September, October, and then it comes around to be May and June, and they have been waitlisted. They don't know if they're admitted or not, and we don't want to drag students out through that process, but we do admit from our waitlist. And so we want to make sure that we admit enough so that um, we have options for that 1600 spaces, but we always leave um, part of those spaces for students on our waitlist because everyone who is accepted will not be admitted. And um, we always want to make sure that those waitlisted students who are students that were just as competitive as the students that were accepted that first try, we just, like you said, don't have enough spots. So our main priority is always to make sure that we have 1600 around that number of students so that they can experience that first year commons experience. And we want to have enough options and have amazing students that we don't want to outright give a deny decision, but also we don't want to waitlist so many students that will not end up getting accepted so that they are just dragged out when there are so many other wonderful options that they can be exploring. Thank you so much, Brianna. And now to you, Ariana. same question. Thanks so much, John. Um, so the way that we determine how many students are admitted or waitlisted, um, and then that sort of then determines how many students will be denied is by thinking about the yield that we anticipate for every college or program that we're trying to enroll at NYU. And I think that's going to be pretty similar across institutions. You're always wanting to think about sort of how many people do we anticipate are going to say yes to our offer. And so if we're trying to shoot for a class of you know, a thousand students in a particular program, if we anticipate that a third of the people that we admit will say yes, that means we probably need to admit initially around 3,000 students to yield that 1,000 student class, just as a hypothetical. Um, so that percentage is really carefully calculated year over year. We have institutional research groups um, in our different universities and colleges that help us keep track of that data and help us determine how many students that we want to admit to each program. And that can really vary. At NYU, we have 10 different colleges and schools, um, and the yield rate across them really is different. And so we have different goals for each of those programs in ways that we are attempting to really meet that class goal with our first initial admitted student class. How we determine how many students we're going to be placing on the wait list, the way that we will use our wait list at NYU is that once we receive our initial responses, you know, after May 1st, we'll then look and see where are some of the holes, where are some of the gaps that we might have in the class. That could be particular majors of interest, that could be particular geographic regions, different identities that we want to make sure are represented within our community. And so then from there, we'll begin to fill some of those holes using the waitlist. So we typically have a pretty large initial waitlist offers because not everyone will say yes to even being on the waitlist. So we might put out a lot of offers to be on that waitlist so that when the time comes for us to begin filling those gaps, we have a lot of different options and we really can continue to create the class that NYU and the Board of Trustees have tasked us to do. So it's a pretty complex um, process, but we're fortunate to have some really wonderful um, leaders and thought processes that we work through in our at our institution to be able to determine how many of those offers to put out onto the street. Well, thank you so much, Ariana and Brianna, for that insight. We truly appreciate it. The next question will be for Asma and Larry. And the question is, many students and their parents don't believe that they have a chance of being admitted if they don't submit test scores, even though more schools have become test optional. Can you share the percentage of students that were admitted last year and didn't submit their test scores. Asma? Sure, so at Syracuse University, um, we had about 60% of our application pool, so about 40,000 apps, 60% of them did not submit test scores. And um, the percentage of students that we admitted without test scores was uh, close to 70%. So you can see that you know it's truly test optional school. I think, um, you know, one thing to always note and do your research 
while an institution may be test optional, there might be some very specific programs that might be like three plus three programs or uh, a bachelor of science and a medical program that do require test scores. So uh, I always run into this every single year where there are thousands of students that, you know, applied for that program, like, well, we need your test scores. No, but your test optional. No, no, that's not this program. So you want to make sure that you're doing your research, but you can always ask the admissions rep um, that's assigned to your territory for the stats um, to really determine, you know, uh, you know, are they truly a test optional school? Are they a school that's leaning more towards test scores um, based on the percentage of students that they are admitting? Um, but it's also always in the context of how many students they're getting without test scores. You know, if there's a very large number of students submitting test scores, then that percentage is going to be high that is admitted with test scores. does not mean that they're not test optional. It's just we have to work with the application pool that we have at that time. Well, thank you so much for that. And that's great advice in terms of making sure students that, yes, the institution might be test optional, but if you're applying to a specific program, perhaps engineering, that school may in fact require you to test. So as we've always said, it's very important to do your research for each of the institutions. Larry, could you answer the same question? Sure. Thanks, John. So at Michigan State University, about 55% of our students uh, for the fall of 22 applied test optional. There was no significant difference in terms of admit percentage. I can tell you as somebody who reads applications from the New York area, including from Syosset High School, that it makes no real impact because I have a lot of other information to look at you know, in terms of a student's academic record, in terms of what they've written in their essay, in terms of what they've been involved in. But also I wanna stress something else about test optional. Test optional is not new. This has been happening, test optional has been around for a long time. And it's simply, there are institutions which are new with test optional but it is not truly a new phenomenon. And I would say, in my opinion, testing is probably one of the most overrated pieces of an application and a student's body of work. It's a few hours sitting in a room. There are so many other things a student can add to their application where they can put themselves, give us a 3D perspective of who they are and what they're gonna bring to be part of our community. Thanks so much, John. Larry, thank you so much for that comprehensive answer. And of course, to you as well, Asma, I really appreciate it. The next question will be for Jade and Lori, which is, when you are reviewing applications and you look at the student's transcript, what are the first things you notice as part of your evaluation process? Jade? I think one of the first things at Adelphi that we look at is, is this student willing to challenge themselves? Now that can mean something different for every student. So we do have a holistic approach when we're looking at applications. So for one student, challenging themselves may be a full course load of either honors or AP coursework. For another student, it may just be one honors class. Um, you know, we really look to see the students trend in grades. So maybe um, their first year, they had a really tough time, they struggled with their grades. And by their junior or senior year, they're now a strong student, and they've taken one honors class, which is such a huge improvement from where they started. The same is going to go, though, for a student who was always a great student. You know, if maybe their junior or senior year, they're taking way more electives and they're not challenging themselves, that's going to mean something to us as well. So we like to see that the students are always pushing themselves to be better and to stay on track as a student. Um, you know, hand in hand with the transcript, we will look outside the transcript as well. Um, I always recommend that students include things like extracurriculars on their application. Um, and it doesn't just have to be clubs or organizations through their school. If they have employment or either family responsibilities, that is something that we will take into consideration once we know what the student is juggling to really, um, that may have an impact on their grades. So that's something that we do take into consideration. Well, that's great advice if they have a job or family responsibility. That's something that's come up as a theme over and over again in the podcast, because first of all, 
it's something that you do that says something about your character. But if in fact you have to take care of a sibling, perhaps an elderly relative, that might be one of the reasons why you're not participating in activities at school because you have those family responsibilities. So I think that's a great point and really important to showcase that, whether it's in your essay or your activity sheet, so that the admissions rep could really get a chance of understanding who you are as a person. So thank you so much for that, Jade. And Lori, same question for you. Thank you so much. Uh, so the, the main factor that we consider in our admissions decisions at Penn State is a student's academic record. Grades are very important in the um, application process. And the first thing that we're looking at are not only that the grades that you've received in the classes that you take, but the specific classes that you are taking. So as Jade said, we certainly do like to see that students are challenging themselves. Uh, of course, we always like to see an upward trajectory uh, of, of grades, but, um, and there is always, you know, if there is some thing or some situation that occurred that would explain a certain dip in grades or, you know, any other situation, certainly reach out. Uh, you know, it's always helpful. There are, you know, places to, to list things on the common application. You can certainly include that or ask a counselor, a school counselor who's writing a recommendation for you to include it. But it really is even more important if there's something that you feel needs to be said to reach out and contact, you know, the admissions counselor. At many schools, you can find out who the admissions counselor who uh, is responsible for your area and reach out to them. Uh, but that being said, you know, we are that again, academics is the first thing that we are looking at. The other thing that we are considering is um, if you are a student, for instance, who's specifically interested in the STEM field, we are going to take a careful look at your STEM grades, at your grades in math and science. Um, and we will look at that differently than a student who is applying to something in the arts or humanities. We'll focus on their overall uh, GPA a little bit more. So it, it does, a lot does have to do with you know what you're saying that you want to study. If you're undecided, that's absolutely fine, and we're going to look at your overall academic average. But if you are applying for a specific type of area, we are going to look at the classes that you're taking in that area. Well, we appreciate that, Lori. Thank you so much to you and to Jade as well. The next question is for Brianna and Ariana, which is, do you know the percentage of your applicants that are placed on a wait list and what is the percentage of those students that actually get offered an acceptance letter from the waitlist? Let's start with Brianna. Another great question. So I actually do not know. Um, we don't have that number publicly, how many students we offer a waitlist spot. But um, like I said before, we always admit from the waitlist. So over the past five years at Vanderbilt, um, it's been an average of 12% of our 1600 first year students were admitted from the wait list. And of course this varies. So some years it might be 10%, some years it might be eight, but it is always a good chunk of our first years, um, those 1600 spots that came from the wait list. Like I said, um, and like Ariana said, it, this is always going to depend on the number of applications we receive and the yield. So we might have admitted a good 3000 students um, and it depends on how many of them accept that spot. And so that's why it is an ongoing process. And I know that it can be really stressful for students. Um, we are nearing the end of finishing our first year class and transfer classes now, um, but they are not completely finished. And so we still have students reaching out, wanting to know that decision. Um, and we definitely wanna give them those decisions as early as possible. So after that May 1st, we wanna see how many students matriculated, accepted their spot, and then from then on, we will admit from the wait list, not just to fill those 1600 spots, but based on the needs of our four schools. So maybe our College of Arts and Science is nearly full and the School of Engineering still has a lot of spots left. And so it really does vary year by year, but generally around 10 to 12% of our first year class comes from the wait list. So, and I think this goes for a lot of schools. If you get waitlisted, that is not a deny decision. You are not out of the race. That means that you were so competitive that we still want to see you. We want to consider you. We just don't have um, enough spots to do so on the first round. So don't get discouraged. Definitely ask your admissions representative what you can do to continue to show your interest, to make your chances of getting off the waitlist better, because maybe there are things that you can do as a waitlisted student that you couldn't do as just an initial applicant. So be vigilant, be patient, and also keep your options open for the fall because just in case you don't get off the wait list, you want to have backup plans. That's always really important. 
Thank you so much, Brianna. We really appreciate it. Ariana, same question. Absolutely. So at NYU, we don't particularly share the number of students who are placed on the wait list. We don't necessarily find that to be a helpful metric for students and families to have just because, like Brianna said, it can vary so much year to year. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the likelihood of being admitted off the wait list is really going to depend on the program's needs and the university's needs. At NYU, we do not take any additional um, letters of interest or things like that into consideration. What we do do when a student is offered a spot on the waitlist um, is give them an opportunity to fill out what we call the waitlist response form, which will allow them to say, yes, I'm interested still in NYU, and additionally allow them the opportunity to indicate any other programs of interest that they may have. So this is a time where you can maybe say, you know, I applied initially to the College of Arts and Science, but I might also be interested in the Applied Psychology program in Steinhardt. So we give students that opportunity. Um, at NYU, we admit for the, from the waitlist for the fall class, but we also do enroll a spring class, and that enrollment comes almost entirely from the waitlist. Um, and so there are a few programs that will have a spring class, not all of them, but that is an option. Um, when you are waitlisted at NYU, know that you may be admitted for one of our spring programs as well, um, and that means that you would enroll in that next spring term and then also the summer term that's following. So you'll have a bit of a gap semester to volunteer, to travel, um, to, you know, learn a new skill and then enroll with us in that next spring after you've graduated from high school. Well, thank you so much, Ariana. I really appreciate the insight. And thank you, of course, to you as well, Brianna. The next question will be for Larry and Ariana, which is, once a student commits to a college, how important is it for them to withdraw from other colleges where they may have been accepted? And can you give us some insight into how difficult the process becomes for you in terms of determining how many students to accept or not from your own wait list when you don't have a final number on how many accepted students are actually attending? Larry, if it's okay, we're going to begin with you. Sure. Thanks, John. So I think for students, uh, it's important that once you make a decision on a certain school, that you do cancel all your other applications. And I think it's important for the student, this is about your peace of mind. This is about you deciding this is your path forward. And honestly, that should be even the most important reason why you want to cancel those other options, because you've decided this is your path forward. I will say it also does help um, students, other students who may be considering the institution, um, you know, and it, it helps the institution figure things out when students have canceled. But more than anything, I really believe it's an advantage for that individual student because now you're focusing on moving forward. And part of that are canceling out what at one time were some of your other options. And you've decided that that's not your option anymore. In terms of us figuring out numbers, we do a lot of modeling based on past experience with numbers. And so we're looking at numbers, we're looking at dates, and that pretty much, much helps drive in terms of decision-making um, and based on the particular size of the class that's wanted that year, that drives what decisions we make you know, based on the reactions of students depositing canceling, et cetera. Thank you so much, Larry. Ariana, same question. So we do um, anticipate that if a student is matriculating at NYU, that they are um, withdrawing other active enrollment opportunities that they might have. So if you've been admitted to three or four schools and you decide that you'd like to attend NYU um, and you submit your deposit, we anticipate that you've withdrawn your application and declined the offer of admission at those other institutions. Um, that is the right and courteous thing to do for all of us as an, as an industry and as colleagues and professionals. And we anticipate that you're going to go ahead and follow through on your enrollment deposit. However, we do know that waitlists can still be active different places. Maybe you are enrolling at NYU at this point, but you're still on the active waitlist at Vanderbilt, like Brianna just mentioned. Um, 
And, and we do anticipate that. We anticipate something called MELT, where students who have decided that they're going to attend NYU or attend our, a different institution will might change their mind and might um, decide to enroll elsewhere because they got an offer off the wait list, or maybe they decide that they want to take a gap year after all. There may be a number of decisions that make it so that students who initially tell us that they're planning on being with us in the fall um, may need to change their mind. Um, and so we do account for that in our sort of enrollment planning. And so usually we'll have, we'll enroll a little bit over what we think that we might need, anticipating that over the summer we might lose a few students along the way. Um, and so after, once the wait lists are closed, we just have to work with what we have um, at the institution at that point. But again, the years of data that we have help us to make those decisions and make sure that they're informed decisions. Well, thank you so much, Ariana and Larry, for that insight. Of course, we appreciate it. The next question will be for Jade and Brianna which is, I received some inquiries from parents asking about AP, IB, and dual enrollment classes and whether or not schools accept them for credit. So does your school accept AP, IB, or dual enrollment classes for credit? Jade, we'll start with you. Sure, thank you. So the answer is yes, Adelphi will accept up to 30 college credits coming from high school, and that can be a mix of AP, IB, or dual enrollment courses. On our website, we do have a whole rubric of the scores needed for AP or IB exams and what credits that would come in as at Adelphi. Um, for dual enrollment classes, we would just need an official transcript from the university you took those classes at, and we will accept credit as long as we offer the same subject matter and you have a grade of C- or higher. That being said, we do just like to let students know that if they are interested in some of those joint degree programs or early assurance programs that we offer, you may still need to take those classes on the ground as a college student. So for example, for some of our health science related programs, you may have taken AP biology in high school, but you may be required to actually take, you know, biology 101 or chemistry 101 at Adelphi in order to qualify for those programs. So you're more than welcome to reach out to your enrollment counselor once you've made all your decisions, and we're happy to walk you through that process of how those credits will look at Adelphi. Thank you so much. And Brianna, same question. Yeah, a lot of my answer is going to sound very similar to Jade's. Um, we do accept AP, IB, and dual enrollment credit at Vanderbilt. Um, it is different based on, you know, what school you are trying to attend within Vanderbilt. Each of the schools have different caveats when it comes to number of credits that you can bring over and limits to those credits. So definitely take a look at each of those schools' websites and our university registrar websites for um, the details. Because at Vanderbilt, um, we love for students to bring over credit. I brought, I think, as much credit as I could, which was probably about six classes when I was an undergraduate at Vanderbilt. But we really emphasize that four-year experience, that residential experience, and being able to get your liberal arts core at Vanderbilt and not just bring in two years worth of credits and then graduate in your third year. So um, we definitely don't want students to feel like they are wasting all the credits they took, especially for students who have a lot of dual enrollment credits or maybe have an associate's degree and they're applying as a transfer. Um, they will ask, can I bring in 60 credits? And maybe we will not let them do that because again, we really focus on that four year experience or for transfers at least two. So keep that in mind because the school that you were applying to, um, if it's your priority to really build off of all of the credits you used and really make sure that they go to use, um, some schools might really want you to take a lot of classes, like Jade said, on the ground. Um, and similar to Adelphi, we have different charts um, in our course catalog and on our website that shows exactly the cutoffs for all the different credits that we take. Typically for an AP test, four or five means you will get credit. Um, but again, there's different caveats. So maybe you will get the credit hours, but that will not count towards your graduation requirements, because again, we want you to take those classes on our campus. So our wonderful university registrar handles all of that, not our Office of Admissions. Um, if you've taken dual enrollment and anyone has happened to take that class at that school before you, we do have a transfer credit tool on our university registrar's website where you can type in this class, see if anyone's taken it before. Um, but if you don't see it, that does not mean that you will not get credit. Always reach out to our external credit crew, which is our university registrar, with any questions about transfer credit. But yes, you were definitely allowed to bring some credits. It just depends on what they are. 
Well, thank you, Brianna and Jade, for such great advice and insight. We really appreciate it. The next question will be for Lori and Asma. In terms of demonstrating interest in a particular college or university, when and how often should a student reach out? When is it too much? What's the right balance? Lori, why don't we begin with you? Thanks, John. What a great question. So um, there are colleges, universities that will outright say that they do track interest and it's part of their admissions process. And then there are many colleges and universities that will say we do not track interest as part of our admissions process. Um, but to be clear, everybody is tracking interest. There is no such thing as not tracking interest. We are aware of when we send out emails, if students are opening their emails. We are aware of when students do come by when we're at a college fair. We know when uh, we visit a high school who's attended the visit. Um, and certainly if, if students reach out and call or email, we are aware of that too. Um, and, you know, we are human. I will say that Penn State does not technically track interest. However, if I'm reading an application and it's a student that I have encountered at a college fair and at a visit um, and has really shown interest, I'm certainly going to pay attention to that. I mean, we are only human. And so we, you know, we do certainly pay attention to when a student is is interested, and we know that student is really interested. Um, but and, and it is great to reach out. I'm always happy to get an email. Somebody can simply reach out and say, I'm really interested in your school, and we're all happy to hear that. And that's fine. It's a great way to reach out. Um, and it's also really great to reach out, and it's appropriate to reach out if you have a very specific question that you are not going to be able to find the answer to um, easily on the website. Uh, however, Reaching out and asking questions that are easily on the website is probably not the best way for you to engage and to show your interest. I mean, we're all very busy. And so getting an email saying, you know, how's your psychology major sometimes can be frustrating when you can go onto our website and look up every class that we offer and read all the research that's going on. So, you know, again, if it's a specific question that you'd really like the answer to that you you know don't know, it's not clear on the website, we are very very, very happy to get those questions. We like to see that you're interested. I would say just really kind of gauge the, the value of the question that you're asking. Well, thank you so much, Lori. And Asma, same question. Lori did an amazing job responding. I would just add that when you are truly interested in an institution, you will naturally demonstrate your interest in many different ways. You know, you will maybe do a virtual visit. You're going to, you know, visit campus. Maybe there's student panels or faculty panels that are going to take place. You're going to try to attend that. Um, when you do go to a college fair, you're going to just stop by at the table, introduce yourself, no guarantee that we will remember you because you know sometimes hundreds of students uh, we come across in a very short period of time, but um, you will naturally try to engage with that college if you're very interested in the school. So there's no right number of like demonstrated interest points. Um, really, the best way to approach it is try to get as much information as you can about the community the academics, students, um, to make a decision if that's where you want to apply and ultimately enroll. Uh, there is a right balance. You know, I don't want to repeat everything that Lori said, uh, but, you know, be mindful that these admission officers sometimes have hundreds and thousands of people in their territory. So emailing them just saying that, hi, I'm interested in applying. It's like, great, I know that you're interested in applying because I do see that you filled out X, Y, and Z form on our website. Um, but if there's something specific that you, you know, you can't find on the website and, you know, you've tried to do research on your own, absolutely reach out to us. Um, and, you know, I would also make a note for when you end up getting waitlisted, hopefully you won't, but if you do end up getting waitlisted, um, you know, there's a way to continue to demonstrate interest so that we know that you're still interested in um, attending our institution. Um, I think uh, this year was I had a student every three days would send me an email to say, I'm, I just want to let you know I'm still interested. 
you know, just letting me know that you're interested does not really add any more depth to that application. So maybe, you know, once you are on the wait list, you just want to send an email saying that I want to, you know, let you know that I'm still interested in attending your university. Um, here are maybe two things that I've accomplished since I submitted my application, right? And then I can add that um, to the file. And then, you know, maybe if it's three weeks later, you want to just check in. We are usually going to be very transparent, letting students know that we are going to release students from the waitlist by X date. So you can then kind of manage um, your communication. So just keep that in mind. Do not go into stalker status because that is not something that we appreciate and it does not really help your um, your chances of admissions by any means. So don't stress about the demonstrated interest piece. Every college uses it differently. Um, just be very genuine in how you research the institution and that will be the best thing for you. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for that answer, particularly the example of the student reaching out to you from the waitlist every three days. When we talk about the right balance, maybe every three days is a little too much. So again, we really appreciate you sharing that. And Lori, thank you for the awesome and comprehensive answer as well. We truly appreciate your insight, everyone. And so that leads us to the last question for everyone, which is going to be, is there anything else you want to share about your school? And what is your top piece of advice for students and their parents getting ready for the college admissions process. And with this answer, we'll start with Jade. Sure, thank you. Um, I think one of my favorite pieces of advice that I had heard on a panel, a panel similar to this one, and it's for the parents, and it's that your students are about to be or already are young adults. And so it's time to start treating them like adults and how you would like to be treated. Um, so the bit of advice is that Try not to spring conversations about college on your students. Um, schedule time to talk about it the same way you wouldn't want your boss to just walk into your office and be like, we need to talk about this project we're going to do with no warning and no preparation time for yourself. It can be a very stressful time for the student. So saying, hey, next Tuesday at 7 p.m., let's sit down and let's talk about how your college application is going, how your essay is going, giving them that time to, to prepare and uh, be ready to go into that conversation with open arms and an open mind um, is something that I think is very important. Um, as stressful as it is for you, you know, they have a lot going on their senior year or the end of their junior year as well, putting together that list. And for the students, um, as we mentioned in the last question about that demonstrated interest, uh, take advantage of all the opportunities there are to connect with the schools that you're interested in. So, um, you know, planning to take advantage of all of the touring opportunities or if there's any panels with the faculty that you're interested in the department you want to go into, see how they're presenting the topics that you might be interested in and see if that's something that is either drawing you in or if it's totally, you know, boring you out of your mind, then maybe you know that that school can be crossed off your list and you can continue on. Well, thank you so much for that, Jay. We truly appreciate it. And if anyone wants more information about Adelphi University, again, Jade was episode number one on the podcast. We appreciate your time today, Jay. Thank you so much. Larry, could you answer the same question? Sure, John. Thank you so much. So students, I want you to remember this whole process is about you. That's who it's about. So my best piece of advice, in addition to remembering it's about you, please be yourself. Don't try to be anybody else. Just try to be who you are, present who you are as you are. The best applications I read every year are the ones that are consistent. And I, the reason I think they're consistent is because the student is just being true to themselves. It's their voice. Just be you. Don't worry about what anyone else is doing. Just be you. Explore for you as you step off into this journey into the rest of your life. John, thanks so much for having me here today. I really enjoyed it. Larry, it's always a pleasure. And folks, if you're interested in hearing more from Larry Alterman or Michigan State, we did episode seven together. Larry, great seeing you again. Thank you so much for being here. And the next person to answer the question, Ariana from NYU. Thanks so much. Um, 
one of the things I feel like we we talked about a bit today is going and touring campuses and how important that is. And now it really can give you a sense of, you know, what it might be like to be a member of a particular community. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about what happens when you maybe are not able to tour campuses. You know, when I went to college, um, I did not visit um, the institution that I went to before I enrolled. Um, so I really, I showed up at Move-In as a first year student and had never, had never really seen the campus before. And it was pretty scary. Um, that was in 2012, um, before there was, you know, the amount of virtual information and visits that we're now offering to students. Um, but it's really common. And so if you are sitting here thinking like, gosh, well, I really want to, go out of state. I really want to go to a different part of the country. Um, and I, and I might not be able to visit. Does that mean that I shouldn't consider or I shouldn't go? Um, I really want to encourage you that even if you're not able to visit a particular campus, know that there are still ways for you to be able to explore what that kind of campus might be like. So think about the colleges and universities that are in your area that you may be able to visit. They maybe have a similar kind of size or a similar kind of layout or a similar kind of um, environment. So if you are thinking that you want to go to a more um, sort of a smaller, secluded, more rural campus, are there rural campuses near you that you can go and visit and figure out if this is a kind of campus environment that you enjoy? Are there really big urban campuses that you can visit that can help you figure out if this is the kind of environment that you enjoy? Um, so use the resources that you have in your area, maybe within your state, to do that that research um, so that if you're thinking about, then you can narrow down like the kinds of institutions that you like and then think about the places that you want to go. There's no harm in not visiting a uh, a campus, you can still be successful. You can end up working for that institution for five years afterward, even if you didn't visit them. Um, <laughs> and it's it's still very much can be a worthwhile experience, even if you're not able to visit them as a junior or senior in high school. Well, Ariana, thank you so much. That's great advice. And folks, if you want to hear more from Ariana Yaritu and of course, NYU, she was episode number 28. Thank you again, Ariana. So, Brianna, could you answer the same question? Brianna from Vanderbilt University. Absolutely. So as I come to the end of my first, you know, full admission cycle, I feel like students are going to roll their eyes at this. But my biggest advice right now is patience. Definitely be patient, have patience. The nature of the whole admissions process when you are choosing what schools to apply to and researching and sending your applications out is waiting. You are waiting to hear back about scholarships, financial aid, if you got in, if you got off the wait list. And waiting is absolutely the worst. It's incredibly stressful. And I know that for so many of our amazing students, they love to take initiative and they don't feel comfortable just sitting idly, not doing anything. But I promise sometimes all you can do is wait. Because like um, Lori said, we're very busy. We have so many wonderful students and we want to do right by each and every one of you. So if you email your counselor and then send a follow-up email 24 hours later, that is not going to mean that we respond faster. Uh, like Ozma said, if you email us every three days for an update on the wait list, that is not going to get you your decision sooner. I promise we want to get you your decision as soon as possible and that's not going to make it come faster. So really by this point, by the beginning of the year, when New Year's rolls around and you've submitted all your applications, you've done all the hard work. And now what you have left to do is wait. So definitely always reach out if you have a question and you need to touch place with us. That is what we're here for. Always reach out, but definitely have patience because we have so many students asking lots of questions. We really want to make sure that we can guide you all through this process. So I know it's hard. Definitely send questions when you have them, but sometimes the best thing you can do is just sit tight. And I promise that it is all going to work out. I think I said this in my episode, it's easy to say as people who have graduated from college and we're on the other side, because um, it is very stressful when you're in it. But I promise you've done all the hard work and now you just have to sit back and wait for all the good things that you've earned to come to you. Well, that's tremendous advice. Thank you so much, Brianna. And if anyone else wants to hear more from Brianna Grimes and, of course, Vanderbilt University, Brianna and I did episode 26 on the podcast. Brianna, it was great seeing you again today. Thank you so much. Lori, could you answer the question as well? Lori from Penn State. 
Thank you so much, John. I'm happy to answer this question. And I answer it as a mom of three who have been through this college process. So I really do appreciate the stresses involved and all the things going on in your families right now as you get ready to embark on the college application process. Um, some advice just general, and then I'm, I'll give you some Penn State advice, but uh, general advice is to really keep an open mind and try to enjoy the process. It is a good process. There are many amazing schools out there and probably more than one that you will, probably many more than one that you could really thrive and be successful at um, and be very happy at. So keep an open mind. Um, start looking at schools wherever you are. If you're on a family vacation or if you're there's something nearby, take the opportunity to go and, and visit a school just to start getting a sense, as Ariana said, to get an idea of you know, types of schools that you're interested in. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is that while we are all in uh, higher education, every university, every institution is a little bit different in how they handle the admissions process. And the best way to keep things straight would to almost keep a spreadsheet of the different schools that you're interested in, get an idea of different types of application plans that are offered, whether it's um, an early action uh process or an early decision binding process or a regular decision or rolling, whatever it is, just get an idea of the different deadlines, get an idea of other things that are required from uh, specific campuses, just so that you get you know numbers of recommendations, uh, essays, supplemental essays, just so you kind of have an idea and you can keep organized. Um, and then, you know, that being said, reach out to, to find out specific things. So for Penn State, my best advice is to apply in our early action plan. We get a lot of applications and as we make offers and we have less spots to uh, offer to people, it gets more and more competitive. Um, that may be different at another school. So it is important to reach out to different universities, find out. Uh, you can reach out and ask any of us, what are, how do I increase my chances of getting in? And we can all give you uh, tips and advice on what are your best chances to get into our specific universities. I mean, they're not, there may not be specific things at every university, but it's certainly worth reaching out and asking, keeping track of it. Um, and again, just keep an open mind and enjoy this process. Well, Lori, thank you so much. That's tremendous advice and insight. And if anyone is interested in hearing more from Lori Wax, representing Penn State University, Lori and I did episode nine together. Lori, it was great having you. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. And Asma. So can I ask Asma, what is your top piece of advice for students and parents getting ready for the college admissions process? Um, I spoke about this a little bit in my episode because I have a financial aid background, but I always try to emphasize that parents and students start that conversation about money early on in the uh, college admissions process. Um, you know, families, you want to set the expectation, realistic expectation. It's always heartbreaking when we have students that maybe apply early decision to a, a very expensive private university and then they get their financial aid package and it doesn't work for the family. And we try our best to, um, you know, appeal for more aid, but it just doesn't work out. And at that point, the student is so far into the process for them to think about going to another institution. And, you know, a lot of times, students are like, I didn't know that my parents could not afford beyond this amount. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't hurt anyone to start the process early and don't always just write off maybe a high sticker price college or university because um, every institution offers different types of financial aid. The, the aid formula is going to vary from institution to institution. And you might be a very competitive applicant in one um, college pool, but you might be right in the middle of 50% uh, at another college. So your aid package might look different. Um, I think it's best to start the conversation early, manage the expectations, and then once you get your financial aid packages, every college has a different process. Some will allow you to appeal for more money or they'll compare other financial aid packages while others are going to be like, nope, sorry, this is what we have. This is our final. And that's okay. It never hurts to ask, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen at that point? They say we can't offer you more money, but you still have that seat to that college. You still have a financial aid package and you know 
what you can expect from there. So then that way you can compare your offerings and um, decide what's best for you and your family at that point. Thank you for having me back, John. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Asma. And if anyone is interested in hearing more from Asma Malik and Syracuse University, Asma and I did episodes four and five. So I would like to take this opportunity to once again thank my entire panel for helping me record episode 50. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank you, the listeners out there. We launched this podcast in February. We're just reaching episode 50, and we've had just shy of 17,000 downloads, which has been astonishing. Clearly, people want this information, they need this information, and they're enjoying it. So here's to another 50. Thank you all, and best wishes. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Cap, the College Admissions Process Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please don't forget to tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am your host, John Durante, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The Cap.